Chapter Four of Captain's Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Four. Harvey waked to find the first half, at breakfast, the forecastle door drawn to a crack, and every square inch of the schooner singing its own tune. The black bulk of the cook balanced behind the tiny galley, over the glare of the stove, and the pots and pans and the pierced wooden board before it jarred and racketed to each plunge. Up and up the forecastle climbed, yearning and surging and quivering, and then, with a clear, sickle-like swoop, came down into the seas. He could hear the flaring boughs cut and squelch, and there was a pause ere the divided waters came down on the deck above, like a volley of buckshot. Followed the woolly sound of the cable in the hawse-hole, a grunt and squeal of the windlass, a yaw, a punt, and a kick, and the weir here gathered herself together to repeat the motions. "'Now ashore,' he heard Long Jack saying, "'ye've chores, and ye must do them in any weather.' Here we're well clear of the fleet, and we've no chores, and that's a blessin'. Good night, all. He passed like a big snake from the table to his bunk, and began to smoke. Tom Platt followed his example. Uncle Salters, with pen, fought his way up the ladder to stand his watch, and the cook set for the second half. It came out of its bunks as the others had entered theirs, with a shake and a yawn. It ate till it could eat no more and then Manuel filled his pipe with some terrible tobacco, crouched himself between the pall-post and a forward bunk, cocked his feet up on the table, and smiled tender and indolent smiles at the smoke. Dan lay at length in his bunk, wrestling with a gaudy, gilt-stopped accordion, whose tunes went up and down with the pitching of the we're here. The cook, his shoulders against the locker where he kept the fried pies—Dan was fond of fried pies peeled potatoes, with one eye on the stove in event of too much water finding its way down the pipe, and the general smell and smother were past all description. Harvey considered affairs, wondered that he was not deathly sick, and crawled into his bunk again, as the softest and safest place, while Dan struck up, I don't want to play in your yard, as accurately as the wild jerks allowed. How long is this for? Harvey asked of Manuel. "'Till she get a little quiet, and we can roll to trawl. Perhaps to-night. Perhaps two days more. You do not like, eh, what?' "'I should have been crazy sick a week ago, but it doesn't seem to upset me now, much.' "'That is because we make you a fisherman, these days. If I was you, when I come to Gloucester, I would give two three big candles for my good luck. Give who? To be sure, the Virgin of our church on the hill. She is very good to fishermen all the time. That is why so few of us Portuguese men ever are drowned. You're a Roman Catholic, then? I am a Madeira man. I am not a Puerto Rico boy. Shall I be Baptist, then? <laughs> eh, what? <laughs> I always give candles. Two? three more when I come to Gloucester. The good virgin, she never forgets me, Manuel. I don't sense it that way. 
Tom Platt put in from his bunk, his scarred face lit up by the glare of a match as he sucked at his pipe. "'It stands to reason the sea's the sea, and you'll get just about what's going, candles or kerosene, for that matter.' "'Tis a mighty good thing,' said Long Jack, "'to have a friend at court, though. I'm a Manuel's way of thinking. About ten years back I was crew to a South Boston market-boat. We was off Minot's Ledge with a northeaster, but first atop of us, thicker in Burgoo. The old man was drunk, his chin was waggin' on the tiller, and I says to myself, if ever I stick my boat-hook into T-Wharf again, I'll show the saints what matter of craft they save me out of. Now I'm here, as ye can well see, and the model of the dirty old Kathleen, that took me a month to make, I give it to the priest, and he hung it up up forenst the altar. There's more sense in givin' a model this by way of being a work of art than any candle. You can buy candles at store, but a model shows the good saints you've took trouble and are grateful." "'Do you believe that, Irish?' said Tom Platt, turning on his elbow. "'Would I do it if I did not, Ohio?' "'Well, Enoch Fuller, he made a model of the old Ohio, and she's to Salem Museum now. Mighty pretty model, too, but I guess Enoch he never done it for no sacrifice. And the way I take it is, there were the makings of an hour-long discussion of the kind that fishermen love, where the talk runs in shouting circles and no one proves anything at the end, had not Dan struck up this cheerful rhyme. Up jumped the mackerel with his striped back, reef in the mainsail and haul on the tack, for it's windy weather. Here Long Jack joined in. And it's blowy weather, when the winds begin to blow, pipe all hands together." Dan went on, with a cautious look at Tom Platt, holding the accordion low in the bunk. Up jumped the cod with his chuckle-head, went to the main-chains to heave at the lead, for it's windy weather, etc. Tom Platt seemed to be hunting for something. Dan crouched lower, but sang louder. Up jumped the flounder that swims to the ground. Chucklehead, chucklehead, mind where you sound. Tom Platt's huge rubber boot whirred across the forecastle and caught Dan's uplifted arm. There was war between the man and the boy ever since Dan had discovered that the mere whistling of that tune would make him angry as he heaved the lead. Thought I'd fetch you, said Dan, returning the gift with precision. If you don't like my music, get out your fiddle. I ain't going to lie here all day and listen to you and Long Jack arguing about candles. Fiddle, Tom Platt, or I'll learn Harve here the tune." Tom Platt leaned down to a locker and brought up an old white fiddle. Manuel's eye glistened, and from somewhere behind the pall-post he drew out a tiny guitar-like thing with wire strings, which he called a natchette. "'Tis a concert,' said Long Jack, beaming through the smoke. "'A regular Boston concert.' There was a burst of spray as the hatch opened, and Disco in yellow oilskins descended. "'You're just in time, Disco. What you doing outside?' "'Just this.' He dropped on to the lockers with the push and heave of the we're here. "'We're singing to keep our breakfast down. You lead, of course, Disco,' said Long Jack. "'Guess there ain't more'n about two old songs I know, and you've heard em both.' His excuses were cut short by Tom Platt launching into a most dolorous tune, like unto the moaning of winds and the creaking of masts. 
with his eyes fixed on the beams above, Disco began this ancient, ancient ditty, Tom Platt flourishing all around him to make the tune and words fit a little. There is a crack packet, crack packet of fame. She hails from New York, and the dreadnought's her name. You may talk of your flyers, swallowtail and black ball, but the dreadnought's the packet that can beat them all. Now the dreadnought she lies in the river Mercy, because of the tugboat to take her to sea. But when she's off soundings, you shortly will know. Chorus. She's the Liverpool packet. Oh, Lord, let her go. Now the dreadnought she's howling crossed the banks of Newfoundland, where the water's all shallow and the bottom's all sand. Says all the little fishes that swim to and fro. Chorus. She's the Liverpool packet. Oh, Lord, let her go. There were scores of verses, for he worked the dreadnought every mile of the way between Liverpool and New York as conscientiously as though he were on her deck, and the accordion pumped and the fiddle squeaked beside him. Tom Platt followed with something about the rough and tough McGinn who would pilot the vessel in. Then they called on Harvey, who felt very flattered, to contribute to the entertainment, but all that he could remember were some pieces of Skipper Ireson's Ride that he had been taught at the camp school in the Adirondacks. It seemed that they might be appropriate to the time and place, but he had no more than mentioned the title when Disco brought down one foot with a bang, and cried, "'Don't go on, young feller. That's a mistaken judgment. One of the worst kind, too, because it's catching to the ear.' "'I order have warned you,' said Dan. "'That allus fetches Dad.' "'What's wrong?' said Harvey, surprised and a little angry. "'All you're going to say,' said Disco. "'All dead wrong from start to finish, and Whittier he's to blame. I have no special call to write any marblehead man, but twarn't no fault of Ireson's. My father he told me the tale time and again, and this is the way it was.' "'For the one hundredth time,' put in Long Jack under his breath. "'Ben Ireson he was skipper of the Betty, young feller.' Coming home from the banks, that was before the war of eighteen twelve, but justice is justice at all times. They found the active of Portland, and Gibbons of that town he was her skipper. They found her leaking off Cape Cod Light. There was a terrible gale on, and they was getting the Betty home as fast as they could crowd her. Well, Ireson he said there warn't any sense to reskin a boat in that sea. The men they wouldn't have it and he laid it before them to stay by the active till the sea run down a piece. They wouldn't have that either, hanging round the cape in any such weather, leak or no leak. They just upstays and quit, naturally taking Ireson with them. Folks to Marblehead was mad at him not running the risk, and because next day, when the sea was calm, they never stopped to think of that. Some of the active's folk was took off by a truro man, they come into Marblehead with their own tale to tell, saying how Ireson had shamed his town, and so forth and so on, and Ireson's men they was scared, seeing public feeling agin em, and they went back on Ireson, and swore he was responsible for the hull act. Twarn't the women neither that tarred and feathered him. Marblehead women don't act that way. Twas a passel of men and boys and they carted him around town in an old dory till the bottom fell out, and Iris and he told em they'd be sorry for it some day. Well, 
The facts come out later, same as they usually do, too late to be any ways useful to an honest man, and Whittier, he come along and picked up the slack end of a lion tail, and tarred and feathered Ben Ireson all over once more after he was dead. "'Twas the only time Whittier ever slipped up, and t'weren't fair. I wailed Dan good when he brought that piece back from school. Tots don't know no better, of course, but I'd give you the facts, hereafter and evermore to be remembered. Ben Ireson weren't no such kind of man as Whittier makes him out. My father, he knew him well, before and after that business, and you beware of hasty judgments, young feller. Next! Harvey had never heard Disco talk so long, and collapsed with burning cheeks. But, as Dan said promptly, a boy could only learn what he was taught at school, and life was too short to keep track of every lie along the coast. Then Manuel touched the jangling, jarring little Natchette to a queer tune, and sang something in Portuguese about Nina Innocente, ending with a full-handed sweep that brought the song up with a jerk. Then Disco obliged with his second song, to an old-fashioned creaky tune, and all joined in the chorus. This is one stanza. Now April is over, and melted the snow, and out of New Bedford we shortly must tow. Yes, out of New Bedford we shortly must clear, were the whalers that never see wheat in the air. Here the fiddle went very softly for a while by itself, and then— Wheat in the ear, my true love's posy blowin'. Wheat in the ear, we're goin' off to sea. Wheat in the ear, I left you fit for sowin'. When I come back, a loaf of bread you'll be. That made Harvey almost weep, though he could not tell why. But it was much worse when the cook dropped the potatoes and held out his hands for the fiddle. Still leaning against the locker door, he struck into a tune that was like something very bad but sure to happen whatever you did. After a little he sang in an unknown tongue, his big chin down on the fiddle-tail, his white eyeballs glaring in the lamplight. Harvey swung out of his bunk to hear better, and amid the straining of the timbers and the wash of the waters the tune crooned and moaned on, like Lee's surf in a blind fog, till it ended with a wail. "'Jimmy Christmas! That gives me the blue creevies,' said Dan. "'What in thunder is it?' "'The song of Finn McCool,' said the cook, "'when he was going to Norway.' His English was not thick, but all clear-cut as though it came from a phonograph. "'Faith, I've been to Norway, but I didn't make that unwholesome noise. "'Tis like some of the old songs, though,' said Long Jack, sighing. "'Don't let's have another without something between,' said Dan, and the accordion struck up a rattling, catchy tune that ended, "'It's six-and-twenty Sundays since last we saw the land with fifteen hundred quintal, and fifteen hundred quintal, teen hundred toppin' quintal, twixt old Quiru and Grand.' "'Hold on!' roared Tom Platt. "'Do you want to nail the trip, Dan? That's Jonah, sure, lest you sing it after all our salt's wet.' "'No, taint. Is it, Dad? Not unless you sing the very last verse. You can't learn me anything on Jonah's.' "'What's that?' said Harvey. "'What's a Jonah?' "'A Jonah's anything that spoils the luck. Sometimes it's a man, sometimes it's a boy, or a bucket. I've known a splittin'-knife Jonah two trips till we was on to her. 
said Tom Platt. There's all sorts of Jonas. Jim Bork was one till he was drowned on George's. I'd never ship with Jim Bork, not if I was starvin'. There was a green dory on the Ezra Flood. That was a Jonah, too, the worst sort of Jonah. Drowned four men, she did, and used to shine fiery of nights in the nest. "'And you believe that?' said Harvey, remembering what Tom Platt had said about candles and models. "'Haven't we all got to take what's served?' A mutter of dissent ran around the bunks. "'Outboard, yes. Inboard, things can happen.' said Disco. Don't you go making a mock of Jonah's, young feller. Well, Harve ain't no Jonah. Day after we catched him, Dan cut in, we had a topping good catch. The cook threw up his head and laughed suddenly, a queer thin laugh. He was a most disconcerting nigger. Murder, said Long Jack. Don't do that again, doctor. We ain't used to it. What's wrong? said Dan. Ain't he our mascot? And didn't they strike on good after we'd struck him? Oh, yes, said the cook. I know that, but the catch is not finished yet. He ain't going to do us any harm, said Dan hotly. Where are you hitting and edging to? He's all right. No harm, no. But one day he will be your master, Danny. That all, said Dan placidly. He won't, not by a jugful. Master, said the cook, pointing to Harvey. Man, and he pointed to Dan. That's news. How soon? said Dan, with a laugh. In some years, and I shall see it. Master and man, man and master. How in thunder did you work that out? said Tom Platt. In my head, where I can see. How? this from all the others at once. I do not know, but so it will be. He dropped his head and went on peeling the potatoes, and not another word could they get out of him. Well, said Dan, a heap of things will have to come about for Harve's any master of mine, but I'm glad the doctor ain't choosing to mark him for a Jonah. Now I mistrust Uncle Salters for the Jonerous Jonah in the fleet regarding his own special luck. Dunno if it's spreadin' same as smallpox. He ought to be on the Carrie Pittman. That boat's her own Jonah, sure. Crews and gear make no differ to her driftin'. Jimmy Christmas! She'll etch loose in a flat calm. Well, we'll clear of the fleet, anyway, said Disco. Carrie Pittman and all. There was a rapping on the deck. Uncle Salters has catched his luck, said Dan as his father departed. It's blown clear, Disco cried and all the forecastle tumbled up for a bit of fresh air. The fog had gone, but a sullen sea ran in great rollers behind it. The weir here slid, as it were, into long sunk avenues and ditches which felt quite sheltered and homelike if they would only stay still. But they changed without rest or mercy, and flung up the schooner to crown one peak of a thousand gray hills, while the wind hooted through her rigging as she zigzagged down the slopes. Far away a sea would burst in a sheet of foam, and the others would follow suit as at a signal, till Harvey's eyes swam with a vision of interlacing whites and greys. Four or five Mother Carey's chickens stormed round in circles, shrieking as they swept past the bows. A rain-squall or two strayed aimlessly over the hopeless waste, 
ran downwind and back again, and melted away. "'Seems to me I saw something flicker just now over yonder,' said Uncle Salters, pointing to the northeast. "'Can't be any of the fleet,' said Disco, peering under his eyebrows, a hand on the forecastle gangway as the solid bows hatcheted into the troughs. "'Seas oiling over dreadful fast. Danny, don't you want to skip up a piece and see how our trawl buoy lays?' Danny, in his big boots, trotted rather than climbed up the main rigging. This consumed Harvey with envy. Hitched himself around the reeling cross-trees, and let his eye rove till it caught the tiny black buoy flag on the shoulder of a mile-away swell. "'She's all right!' he hailed. "'Sail o! Dead to the northard, coming down like smoke. Schooner she be, too!' They waited another half-hour, the sky clearing in patches, with a flicker of sickly sun from time to time that made patches of olive-green water. Then a stump foremast lifted, ducked, and disappeared, to be followed on the next wave by a high stern with old-fashioned wooden snails' horn davits. The sails were red-tanned. "'Frenchman!' shouted Dan. "'No, tain't neither. Dad!' "'That's no French,' said Disco. "'Salters, your blame luck holds tighter'n a screw in a keghead.' "'I've eyes. It's Uncle Abishay.' You can't nowise tell for sure. The head king of all Jonahs, groaned Tom Platt. Oh, Salters, Salters, why wasn't you abed and asleep? How could I tell? said poor Salters, as the schooner swung up. She might have been the very flying Dutchman, so foul, draggled, and unkempt was every rope and stick aboard. Her old-style quarter-deck was some four or five feet high and her rigging flew knotted and tangled like weed at a wharf-end. She was running before the wind, yawing frightfully, her staysail let down to act as a sort of extra foresail, scandalized, they call it, and her foreboom guyed out over the side. Her bowsprit cocked up like an old-fashioned frigate's, her jib-boon had been fished and spliced and nailed and clamped beyond further repair, and as she hove herself forward, and sat down on her broad tail, she looked for all the world like a blowsy, frowsy, bad old woman sneering at a decent girl. "'That's Abishai,' said Salters, "'full of gin and judic men, and the judgments of Providence laying for him and never taking good holt. He's run into bait, Mickelin way.' "'He run her under,' said Long Jack. "'That's no rig for this weather.' "'Not he, or he'd have done it long ago.' Disco replied. "'Looks as if he's calculated to run us under. Ain't she down by the head more natural, Tom Platt?' "'If it's his style of loadin' her, she ain't safe,' said the sailor, slowly. "'If she spewed her oakum, he'd better get to his pumps mighty quick.' The creature thrashed up, wore round with a clatter and rattle, and lay head to wind within earshot. A greybeard wagged over the bulwark, and a thick voice yelled something Harvey could not understand. But Disco's face darkened. "'He'd risk every stick he has to carry bad news. Says we're in for a shift of wind. He's in for worse. Abishai! Abishai!' He waved his arm up and down with a gesture of a man at the pumps, and pointed forward. The crew mocked him and laughed. 
Jounce ye and strip ye and trip ye, yelled Uncle Abishai. A livin' gale, a livin' gale, yeah, cast up for your last trip, all you Gloucester haddocks. You won't see Gloucester no more, no more. Crazy full, as usual, said Tom Platt. Wish he hadn't spied us, though. She drifted out of hearing while the greyhead yelled something about a dance at the Bay of Bulls and a dead man in the forecastle. Harvey shuddered. He had seen the sloven-tilled decks and the savage-eyed crew. "'And that's a fine little float in hell for a draft,' said Long Jack. "'I wonder what mischief she's been at ashore.' "'He's a trawler,' Dan explained to Harvey, "'and he runs her for bait all along the coast. Oh, no, not home. He don't go. He deals along the south and east shore up yonder.' He nodded in the direction of the pitiless Newfoundland beaches. "'Dad won't never take me ashore there. They're a mighty tough crowd, and Abishai's the toughest. You saw his boat? Well, she's nigh seventy year old, they say, the last of the old marblehead heel-tappers. They don't make them quarter-decks any more. Abishai don't use marblehead, though. He ain't wanted there. He just drifts around in debt trawlin' and cussin' like you've heard. Been a Jonah for years and years, he says. Gets liquor from the free camp boats for making spells and sellin' winds and such truck. Crazy, I guess. "'Twon't be any use underrunnin' the trawl to-night,' said Tom Platt, with quiet despair. He come alongside special to cuss us. I'd give my wage and share to see him at the gangway of the old Ohio fore we quit floggin'. Just about six dozen, and Sam Mokata layin' em on criss-cross. The dishevelled heel-tapper danced drunkenly downwind, and all eyes followed her. Suddenly the cook cried in his phonograph voice, "'It was his own death made him speak so. He is Fay, Fay, I tell you. Look!' She sailed into a patch of watery sunshine three or four miles distant. The patch dulled and faded out and even as the light passed, so did the schooner. She dropped into a hollow, and was not. "'Run under, by the great hawk block!' shouted Disco, jumping aft. "'Drunk or sober, we've got to help him. Heave short and break her out. Smart!' Harvey was thrown on the deck by the shock that followed the setting of the jib and foresail, for they hove short on the cable, and to save time jerked the anchor bodily from the bottom heaving in as they moved away. This is a bit of brute force seldom resorted to except in matters of life and death, and the little we're here complained like a human. They ran down to where Abishai's craft had vanished, found two or three trawl-tubs, a gin-bottle, and a stove-in dory, but nothing more. "'Let em go,' said Disco, though no one had hinted at picking them up. I wouldn't have a match that belonged to Abishai aboard. Guess she run clear under. Must have been spewing her oakum for a week, and they never thought to pump her. Ah, that's one more boat gone along a leaving port all hands drunk. Glory be, said Long Jack. We'd have been obliged to help him if they were top of water. Thinking of that myself, said Tom Platt. Fay. Fay, said the cook, rolling his eyes, he has taken his own luck with him. Very good thing, I think, to tell the fleet when we see, 
"'Eh, what?' said Manuel. "'If you run a that way before the wind, and she work open her seams—' He threw out his hands with an indescribable gesture, while Penn sat down on the house, and sobbed at the sheer horror and pity of it all. Harvey could not realize that he had seen death on the open waters, but he felt very sick. Then Dan went up the cross-trees, and Disco steered them back to within sight of their own trawl-buoys, just before the fog blanketed the sea once again. "'We go mighty quick hereabouts when we do go,' was all he said to Harvey. "'You think on that for a spell, young feller. That was liquor.' After dinner it was calm enough to fish from the decks. Penn and Uncle Salters were very zealous this time, and the catch was large and large fish. "'Abishai surely took his luck with him,' said Salters. "'The wind ain't back nor riz nor nothin'. How about the trawl? I despise superstition anyway.' Tom Platt insisted that they had much better haul the thing and make a new berth. But the cook said, "'The luck is in two pieces. You will find it so when you look. I know.' This so tickled Long Jack that he overbore Tom Platt, and the two went out together. Underrunning a trawl means pulling it in on one side of the dory, picking off the fish, rebaiting the hooks, and passing them back to the sea again something like pinning and unpinning linen on a wash-line. It is a lengthy business, and rather dangerous, for the long, sagging line may twitch a boat under in a flash. But when they heard, "'And now to thee, O Captain!' booming out of the fog, the crew of the We're Here took heart. The dory swirled alongside, well loaded, Tom Platt yelling for Manuel to act as relief-boat. "'The luck's cut square in two pieces,' said Long Jack, forking in the fish while Harvey stood open-mouthed at the skill with which the plunging dory was saved from destruction. One half was just pumpkins. Tom Platt wanted to haul her, and had done with it. But I said, I'll back the doctor that has the second sight, and the other half come up sagging full of biggins. Hurry, Manny, and bring a tub of bait. There's luck afloat to-night. The fish bit at the newly baited hooks from which their brethren had just been taken and Tom Platt and Long Jack moved methodically up and down the length of the trawl, the boat's nose surging under the wet line of hooks, stripping the sea-cucumbers that they called pumpkins, slatting off the fresh-caught cod against the gunwale, rebaiting, and loading Manuel's dory till dusk. "'I'll take no risks,' said Disco, then, "'not with him floating around so near. Abishai won't sink for a week. Heave in the dories, and we'll dress down after supper.' That was a mighty dressing-down, attended by three or four blowing grampuses. It lasted till nine o'clock, and Disco was thrice heard to chuckle as Harvey pitched the split fish into the hold. "'Say, you're hauling ahead dreadful fast,' said Dan, when they ground the knives after the men had turned in. "'There's something of a sea to-night, and I hain't heard you made no remarks on it.' "'Too busy,' Harvey replied, testing a blade's edge. Come to think of it, she is a high kicker. The little schooner was gambling all around her anchor among the silver-tipped waves. Backing with a start of affected surprise at the sight of the strained cable, she pounced on it like a kitten, while the spray of her descent burst through the hawse-holes with the report of a gun. Shaking her head, she would say, "'Well, I'm sorry I can't stay any longer with you. I'm going north.' 
and would sidle off, halting suddenly with a dramatic rattle of her rigging. "'And I was just going to observe,' she would begin, as gravely as a drunken man addressing a lamp-post. The rest of the sentence, she acted her words in dumb show, of course, was lost in a fit of fidgets, when she behaved like a puppy chewing a string, a clumsy woman in a side-saddle, a hen with her head cut off, or a cow stung by a hornet, exactly as the whims of the sea took her. "'See her say in her piece? She's Patrick Henry now,' said Dan. She swung sideways on a roller, and gesticulated with her jib-boon from port to starboard. "'But as for me, give me liberty, or give me death!' Whop! She sat down in the moon-path on the water, curtsying with a flourish of pride impressive enough, had not the wheel-gear sniggered mockingly in its box. Harvey laughed aloud. "'Why, it's just as if she was alive,' he said. "'She's as steady as a house and dry as a herring,' said Dan, enthusiastically, as he was stung across the deck in a batter of spray. "'Fends em off and fends em off, and don't you come nigh me,' she says. "'Look at her, just look at her. Sakes, you should see one of them toothpicks heisting up her anchor on her spike over fifteen fathom water.' "'What's a toothpick, Dan?' "'Them new haddockers and herring boats. Fine as a yacht forward, with yacht sterns to em, and spike bowsprits, and a house that'd take our hold. I've heard that Burgess himself he made the models for three or four of em. Dad sat against em on account of their pitching and jolting, but there heaps of money in em. Dad can find fish, but he ain't no ways progressive. He don't go with the march of the times. They're chock-full of labor-saving jigs and such all. Ever see the elector of Gloucester? She's a daisy, if she is a toothpick. What do they cost, Dan? Hills of dollars. Fifteen thousand, perhaps. More, maybe. There's gold leaf and everything you can think of. Then, to himself, half under his breath, Guess I'd call her Hattie S., too. End of chapter Chapter Five of Captain's Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Five. That was the first of many talks with Dan, who told Harvey why he would transfer his dory's name to the imaginary Burgess-modelled Haddocker. Harvey heard a good deal more about the real Hattie at Gloucester, saw a lock of her hair, which Dan, finding fair words of no avail, had hooked as she sat in front of him at school that winter, and a photograph. Hattie was about fourteen years old, with an awful contempt for boys and had been trampling on Dan's heart through the winter. All this was revealed under oath of solemn secrecy on moonlit decks, in the dead dark, or in choking fog, the whining wheel behind them, the climbing deck before, and without, the unresting clamorous sea. 
Once, of course, as the boys came to know each other, there was a fight, which raged from bow to stern till Penn came up and separated them, but promised not to tell Disco, who thought fighting on watch rather worse than sleeping. Harvey was no match for Dan physically, but it says a great deal for his new training that he took his defeat, and did not try to get even with his conqueror by underhand methods. That was after he had been cured of a string of boils between his elbows and wrists, where the wet jersey and oilskins cut into the flesh. The salt water stung them unpleasantly, but when they were ripe Dan treated them with Disco's razor, and assured Harvey that now he was a blooded banker, the affliction of gurry-sores being the mark of the caste that claimed him. Since he was a boy, and very busy, he did not bother his head with too much thinking. He was exceedingly sorry for his mother, and often longed to see her, and above all to tell her of his wonderful new life, and how brilliantly he was acquitting himself in it. Otherwise he preferred not to wonder too much how she was bearing the shock of his supposed death. But one day, as he stood on the forecastle ladder, guying the cook, who had accused him of Dan of hooking fried pies, it occurred to him that this was a vast improvement on being snubbed by strangers in the smoking-room of a hired liner. He was a recognized part of the scheme of things on the We're Here, had his place at the table and among the bunks, and could hold his own in the long talks on stormy days, when the others were always ready to listen to what they called his fairy tales of his life ashore. It did not take him more than two days and a quarter to feel that if he spoke of his own life it seemed very far away. No one except Dan, and even Dan's belief was sorely tried, credited him. So he invented a friend, a boy he had heard of, who drove a miniature four-pony drag in Toledo, Ohio, and ordered five suits of clothes at a time, and led things called Germans at parties where the oldest girl was not quite fifteen but all the presents were solid silver. Salters protested that this kind of yarn was desperately wicked, if not, indeed, positively blasphemous, but he listened as greedily as the others, and their criticisms at the end gave Harvey entirely new notions on Germans, clothes, cigarettes with gold-leaf tips, rings, watches, scent, small dinner-parties, champagne, card-playing, and hotel accommodation. Little by little he changed his tone when speaking of his friend, whom Long Jack had christened the Crazy Kid, the Gilt-Edged Baby, the Second Vanderpoop, and other pet names, and with his sea-booted feet cocked up on the table would even invent histories about silk pajamas and specially imported neckwear, to the friend's discredit. Harvey was a very adaptable person, with a keen eye and ear for every face and tone about him. Before long he knew where Disco kept the old green-crusted quadrant that they called the hog-yoke, under the bed-bag in his bunk. When he took the sun, and with the help of the old farmer's almanac found the latitude, Harvey would jump down into the cabin and scratch the reckoning and date with a nail on the rust of the stove-pipe. Now the chief engineer of the liner could have done no more and no engineer of thirty years' service could have assumed one half of the ancient mariner air with which Harvey, first careful to spit over the side, made public the schooner's position for that day, and then and not till then relieved Disco of the quadrant. 
There is an etiquette in all these things. The said hog-yoke, an eldridge chart, the farming almanac, Blunt's coast pilot, and Bowditch's navigator, were all the weapons Disco needed to guide him, except the deep-sea lead that was his spare eye. Harvey nearly slew Penn with it when Tom Platt taught him first how to fly the blue pigeon, and though his strength was not equal to continuous sounding in any sort of a sea, for calm weather with a seven-pound lead on shoal water, Disco used him freely. As Dan said, "'Tain't soundin' Dad wants. It's samples. Grease her up good, Harve." Harvey would tallow the cup at the end, and carefully bring the sand, shell, sludge, or whatever it might be, to Disco, who fingered and smelt it and gave a judgment. As has been said, when Disco thought of cod he thought as a cod, and by some long-tested mixture of instinct and experience moved the weir here from berth to berth, always with the fish, as a blindfolded chess-player moves on the unseen board. But Disco's board was the Grand Bank, a triangle two hundred and fifty miles, on each side, a waste of wallowing sea, cloaked with dank fog, vexed with gales, harried with drifting ice, scored by the tracks of the reckless liners, and dotted with the sails of the fishing fleet. For days they worked in fog, Harvey at the bell, till, grown familiar with the thick airs, he went out with Tom Platt, his heart rather in his mouth. But the fog would not lift, and the fish were biting, and no one can stay helplessly afraid for six hours at a time. Harvey devoted himself to his lines and the gaff or gobstick, as Tom Platt called for them, and they rowed back to the schooner, guided by the bell and Tom's instinct, Manuel's conch sounding thin and faint beside them. But it was an unearthly experience, and for the first time in a month Harvey dreamed of the shifting, smoking floors of water round the dory, the lines that strayed away into nothing, and the air above that melted on the sea below ten feet from his straining eyes. A few days later he was out with Manuel on what should have been forty-fathom bottom, but the whole length of the roding ran out, and still the anchor found nothing, and Harvey grew mortally afraid, for that his last touch with earth was lost. Whale hole said Manuel, hauling in. That is good joke on Disco. Come. And he rowed to the schooner to find Tom Platt and the others jeering at the skipper, because for once he had led them to the edge of the barren whale-deep, the blank hole of the Grand Bank. They made another berth through the fog, and that time the hair of Harvey's head stood up when he went out in Manuel's dory. A whiteness moved in the whiteness of the fog, with a breath like the breath of the grave, and there was a roaring, a plunging, and spouting. It was his first introduction to the dread summer berg of the banks, and he cowered in the bottom of the boat while Manuel left. There were days, though, clear and soft and warm, when it seemed to sin to do anything but loaf over the hand-lines and spank the drifting sun-scalds with an oar, and there were days of light airs when Harvey was taught how to steer the schooner from one berth to another. It thrilled through him when he first felt the keel answer to his hand on the spokes, and slide over the long hollows as the foresail scythed back and forth against the blue sky. That was magnificent, 
in spite of Disco saying that it would break a snake's back to follow his wake. But, as usual, pride ran before a fall. They were sailing on the wind with a staysail, an old one, luckily, set, and Harvey jammed her right into it to show Dan how completely he had mastered the art. The foresail went over with a bang, and the foregaff stabbed and ripped through the staysail, which was, of course, prevented from going over by the mainstay. They lowered the wreck in awful silence, and Harvey spent his leisure hours for the next few days under Tom Platt's lee, learning to use a needle and palm. Dan hooted with joy, for, as he said, he had made the very same blunder himself in his early days. Boylike, Harvey imitated all the men by turns, till he had combined Disco's peculiar stoop at the wheel, Long Jack's swinging overhand when the lines were hauled, Manuel's round-shouldered but effective stroke in a dory, and Tom Platt's generous Ohio stride along the deck. "'Tis beautiful to see how he takes to it,' said Long Jack, when Harvey was looking out by the windlass one thick noon. "'I'll lay my wage and share. Tis more'n half-play actin' to him, and he conceits himself he's a bold mariner. Watch his little bit of a back now.' "'That's the way we all begin,' said Tom Platt. "'The boys they make believe all the time, till they've cheated themselves into being men, and so till they die, pretendin' and pretendin'. I done it on the old Ohio, I know. Stood my first watch, harbor watch, feelin' finer than Farragut. Dan's full of the same kind of notions. See em now, actin' to be genuine moss-backs.' every hair a rope-yarn and blood stockholm tar he spoke down the cabin stairs guess you're mistook in your judgments for once disco what in rome made you tell us all here the kid was crazy he was disco replied crazy as a loon when he come aboard but i'll say he's sobered up considerable since i cured him he yarns good said tom platt the other night he told us about a kid of his own size, steering a cunning little rig and four ponies up and down Toledo, Ohio, I think it was, and giving suppers to a crowd of similar kids. <laughs> Curious kind of fairy tale, but blame interesting. He knows scores of them. Guess he strikes them out of his own head, Disco called from the cabin, where he was busy with the logbook. Stands to reason that sort is all made up. It don't take in no one but Dan, and he laughs at it. I've heard him behind my back. You ever hear what Simon Peter Calhoun said when they whacked up a match twixt his sister Hitty and Lauren Gerald, and the boys put up that joke on him down to George's? drawled Uncle Salters, who was dripping peaceably under the lee of the starboard dory nest. Tom Platt puffed at his pipe in scornful silence. He was a Cape Cod man, and had not known that tale more than twenty years. Uncle Salters went on with a rasping chuckle. Simon Peter Calhoun, he said, and he was just right, about Lauren. Half on the town, he said, and the other half blame fool, and they told me she's married a rich man. Simon Peter Calhoun, he needn't no roof to his mouth and talk that way. He didn't talk any Pennsylvania Dutch. Tom Platt replied. You'd better leave a Cape man to tell that tale. The Calhouns were gypsies from way back. Well, I don't profess to be any allocutionist, Salter said. 
I'm coming to the moral of things. That's just about what our harve be. Half on the town, and the other half blame fool, and there's some'll believe he's a rich man. Yeah. Did you ever think how sweet twould be to sail with a full crew of salterses? said Long Jack. Half in the fur and other half in the muck heap, as Calhoun did not say, and makes out he's a fisherman. A little laugh went around at Salter's expense. Disco held his tongue and wrought over the log-book that he kept in a hatchet-faced, square hand. This was the kind of thing that ran on, page after soiled page. July 17. This day thick fog and few fish. Made berth to northward. So ends this day. July 18. This day comes in with thick fog. Caught a few fish. July 19. This day comes in with light breeze from northeast and fine weather. Made a berth to eastward. Caught plenty fish. July 20. This, the Sabbath, comes in with fog and light winds. So ends this day. Total fish caught this week, 3,478. They never worked on Sundays, but shaved and washed themselves if it were fine, and Pennsylvania sang hymns. Once or twice he suggested that, if it was not an impertinence, he thought he could preach a little. Uncle Salters nearly jumped down his throat at the mere notion reminding him that he was not a preacher and mustn't think of such things. "'We'd have him rememberin' Johnstown next,' Salters explained. "'And what would happen then?' So they compromised on his reading aloud from a book called Josephus. It was an old leather-bound volume, smelling of a hundred voyages, very solid and very like the Bible, but enlivened with accounts of battles and sieges, and they read it nearly from cover to cover. Otherwise Penn was a silent little body. He would not utter a word for three days on end sometimes, though he played checkers, listened to the songs, and laughed at the stories. When they tried to stir him up he would answer, I don't wish to seem unneighborly, but it is because I have nothing to say. My head feels quite empty. I've almost forgotten my name. He would turn to Uncle Salters with an expectant smile. "'Why, Pennsylvania Pratt!' Salters would shout. "'You'll forget me next!' "'No, never,' Penn would say, shutting his lips firmly. "'Pennsylvania Pratt, of course,' he would repeat over and over. Sometimes it was Uncle Salters who forgot, and told him he was Haskins, or Rich, or McVitie, but Penn was equally content till next time. He was always very tender with Harvey, whom he pitied both as a lost child and as a lunatic, and when Salters saw that Penn liked the boy, he relaxed too. Salters was not an amiable person. He esteemed it his business to keep the boys in order, and the first time Harvey, in fear and trembling, on a still day, managed to shin up to the main truck. Dan was behind him ready to help. He esteemed it his duty to hang Salter's big sea-boots up there, a sign of shame and derision to the nearest schooner. With Disco, Harvey took no liberties, not even when the old man dropped direct orders, and treated him like the rest of the crew to, "'Don't you want to do so-and-so?' and, so? and "'Guess you better,' and so forth. 
There was something about the clean-shaven lips and the puckered corners of the eyes that was mightily sobering to young blood. Disco showed him the meaning of the thumbed and pricked chart, which, he said, laid over any government publication whatsoever, led him, pencil in hand, from berth to berth over the whole string of banks, Le Havre, Western, Bankerot, Saint-Pierre, Green, and Grand, talking cod meantime taught him, too, the principle on which the hog-yoke was worked. In this Harvey excelled Dan, for he had inherited a head for figures, and the notion of stealing information from one glimpse of the sullen bank sun appealed to all his keen wits. For other sea-matters his age handicapped him. As Disco said, he should have begun when he was ten. Dan could bait up trawl or lay his hand on any rope in the dark and at a pinch, when Uncle Salters had a gurry sore on his palm, could dress down by sense of touch. He could steer in anything short of half a gale from the feel of the wind on his face, humouring the weir here just when she needed it. These things he did as automatically as he skipped about the rigging, or made his dory a part of his own will and body. But he could not communicate his knowledge to Harvey. Still there was a good deal of general information flying about the schooner on stormy days, when they lay up in the forecastle or sat on the cabin lockers, while spare eye-bolts, leads, and rings rolled and rattled in the pauses of the talk. Disco spoke of whaling voyages in the fifties, of great she-whales slain beside their young, of death-agonies on the black tossing seas, and blood that spurted forty feet in the air of boats smashed to splinters, of patent rockets that went off wrong end first and bombarded the trembling crews, of cutting in and boiling down, and that terrible nip of seventy-one, when twelve hundred men were made homeless on the ice in three days. Wonderful tales, all true. But more wonderful still were his stories of the cod, and how they argued and reasoned on their private businesses deep down below the keel. Long Jack's tastes ran more to the supernatural. He held them silent with ghastly stories of the yo-hos on the Monomoy beach that mock and terrify lonely clam-diggers, of sand-walkers and dune-haunters who were never properly buried, of hidden treasure on Fire Island guarded by the spirits of Kidd's men, of ships that sailed in the fog straight over Truro Township of that harbour in Maine where no one but a stranger will lie at anchor twice in a certain place, because of a dead crew who row alongside at midnight with the anchor in the bow of their old-fashioned boat, whistling, not calling, but whistling, for the soul of the man who broke their rest. Harvey had a notion that the east coast of his native land, from Mont Desert south, was populated chiefly by people who took their houses there in the summer, and entertained in country houses with hardwood floors and vantine portieres. He laughed at the ghost tales, not as much as he would have done a month before, but ended by sitting still and shuddering. Tom Platt dealt with his interminable trip round the horn on the old Ohio in the flogging days, with a navy more extinct than the dodo, the navy that passed away in the Great War. He told them how red-hot shot are dropped into a cannon, a wad of wet clay between them and the cartridge, how they sizzle and reek when they strike wood, and how the little ship-boys of the Miss Jim Buck 
hove water over them and shouted to the fort to try again. And he told tales of blockade, long weeks of swaying at anchor, varied only by the departure and return of steamers that had used up their coal. There was no change for the sailing ships. Of gales and cold, cold that kept two hundred men night and day pounding and chopping at the ice on cable, blocks, and rigging, when the galley was as red-hot as the fort shot, and men drank cocoa by the bucket. Tom Platt had no use for steam. His service closed when that thing was comparatively new. He admitted that it was a specious invention in time of peace, but looked hopefully for the day when sails should come back again on ten-thousand-ton frigates with hundred-and-ninety-foot booms. Manuel's talk was slow and gentle, all about pretty girls in Madeira washing clothes in the dry beds of streams, by moonlight, under waving bananas, legends of saints, and tales of queer dances, or fights away in the cold Newfoundland baiting ports. Salter's was mainly agricultural, for though he read Josephus and expounded it, his mission in life was to prove the value of green manures, and specially of clover, against every form of phosphate whatsoever. He grew libelous about phosphates. He dragged greasy orange jud books from his bunk and intoned them, wagging his finger at Harvey, to whom it was all Greek. Little Penn was so genuinely pained when Harvey made fun of Salter's lectures that the boy gave it up, and suffered in polite silence. That was very good for Harvey. The cook naturally did not join in these conversations. As a rule he spoke only when it was absolutely necessary but at times a queer gift of speech descended on him, and he held forth, half in Gaelic, half in broken English, an hour at a time. He was specially communicative with the boys, and he never withdrew his prophecy that one day Harvey would be Dan's master, and that he would see it. He told them of mail-carrying in the winter up Cape Breton Way, of the dog-train that goes to Coudray, and of the ram-steamer Arctic that breaks the ice between the mainland and Prince Edward Island. Then he told them stories that his mother had told him, of life far to the southward, where water never froze, and he said that when he died his soul would go to lie down on a warm white beach of sand, with palm-trees waving above. That seemed to the boys a very odd idea for a man who had never seen a palm in his life. Then, too, regularly at each meal, he would ask Harvey, and Harvey alone, whether the cooking was to his taste, and this always made the second half laugh. Yet they had a great respect for the cook's judgment, and in their hearts considered Harvey something of a mascot by consequence. And while Harvey was taking in knowledge of new things at each pore, and hard health with every gulp of the good air, the we're here went her ways and did her business on the bank, and the silvery-gray kenches of well-pressed fish mounted higher and higher in the hold. No one day's work was out of the common, but the average days were many and close together. Naturally a man of Disco's reputation was closely watched, scrouged upon, Dan called it, by his neighbors, but he had a very pretty knack of giving them the slip through the curdling, glidy fog-banks. Disco avoided company for two reasons. He wished to make his own experiments in the first place, and in the second he objected to the mixed gatherings of a fleet of all nations. 
The bulk of them were mainly Gloucester boats, with a scattering from Provincetown, Harwich, Chatham, and some of the main ports, but the crews drew from goodness knows where. Risk breeds recklessness, and when greed is added there are fine chances for every kind of accident in the crowded fleet, which, like a mob of sheep, is huddled round some unrecognized leader. "'Let the two Geralds lead them,' said Disco. "'We're bound to lay among em for a spell on the eastern shoals, though if luck holds we won't have to lay long. Where we are now, Harve, ain't considered no ways good ground.' "'Ain't it?' said Harvey, who was drawing water. He had learned just how to wiggle the bucket, after an unusually long dressing down. "'Shouldn't mind striking some poor ground for a change, then.' "'All the ground I want to see, don't want to strike her, is Eastern Point,' said Dan. "'Say, Dad, it looks as if we wouldn't have to wait more than two weeks on the shoals. You'll meet all the company you want, then, Harv. That's the time we begin to work.' No regular meals for no one, then. Mug up when you're hungry, and sleep when you can't keep awake. Good job you wasn't picked up a month later than you was, or we'd never have you dressed in shape for the old virgin." Harvey understood from the Eldridge chart that the old virgin and a nest of curiously named shoals were the turning point of the cruise, and that with good luck they would wet the balance of their salt there. But seeing the size of the virgin, it was one tiny dot. He wondered how even Disco, with the hog-yoke and the lead, could find her. He learned later that Disco was entirely equal to that and any other business, and could even help others. A big four-by-five blackboard hung in the cabin, and Harvey never understood the need of it until, after some blinding thick days, they heard the unmelodious tooting of a foot-power foghorn a machine whose note is as that of a consumptive elephant. They were making a short berth, towing the anchor under their foot to save trouble. "'Square rigger bellowin' for his latitude,' said Long Jack. The dripping red headsails of a bark glided out of the fog, and the weir here rang her belch thrice, using sea shorthand. The larger boat backed her topsail with shrieks and shoutings. "'Frenchmen!' said Uncle Salters, scornfully. "'Micklin' boat from St. Malo!' The farmer had a weatherly sea-eye. "'I'm most at her backy, too, Disco.' "'Same here,' said Tom Platt. "'Hi! Bakez-vous! Bakez-vous! Stande away, eh, you butt-ended mucho bono! Where you from, St. Malo, eh?' "'Aha! Mucho bono! Oui, oui! Clos-Poulet, Saint-Malo, Saint-Pierre et Miquelon!" cried the other crowd, waving woolen caps and laughing, then all together, "'Bore! Bored!' "'Bring up the board, Danny. Beats me how them Frenchmen fetch anywheres, except in America's fairish broadly. Forty-six, forty-nine's good enough for em, and I guess it's about right, too.' Dan chalked the figures on the board, and they hung it in the main-rigging to a chorus of mercies from the bark. "'Seems kinda unneighborly to let em swedge off like this,' Salter suggested, feeling in his pockets. "'Have you learned French, then, since last trip?' said Disco. "'I don't want no more stone ballast hove at us, long o' your calm Mickelum boats, footy coochins, same as you did off Le Havre.' Harmon Rush, he said that was the way to rise em. 
plain United States is good enough for me. We're all dreadful short on tobacco. Young feller, don't you speak French? Oh, yes, said Harvey valiantly, and he bawled. Hi! Say! Arrêtez-vous! Attendez! Nous sommes venus pour tabac! Ah! Tabac! Tabac! they cried, and laughed again. That hit em. Let's heave a dory over, anyway, said Tom Platt. I don't exactly hold no certificates on French, but I know another lingo that goes, I guess. Come on, Harve, and interpret. The raffle and confusion when he and Harvey were hauled up the bark's black side was indescribable. Her cabin was all stuck round with glaring colored prints of the Virgin, the Virgin of Newfoundland, they called her. Harvey found his French of no recognized bank brand, and his conversation was limited to nods and grins. But Tom Platt waved his arms and got along swimmingly. The captain gave him a drink of unspeakable gin, and the opera cornique crew, with their hairy throats, red caps, and long knives, greeted him as a brother. Then the trade began. They had tobacco, plenty of it, American that had never paid duty to France. They wanted chocolate and crackers. Harvey rode back to arrange with the cook and Disco, who owned the stores, and on his return the cocoa tins and cracker bags were counted out by the Frenchman's wheel. It looked like a piratical division of loot, but Tom Platt came out of it roped with black pigtail and stuffed with cakes of chewing and smoking tobacco. Then those jovial mariners swung off into the mist, and the last Harvey heard was a gay chorus. Par derrière chez ma tante, il y a un bois joli, et le rossignol y chante, et le jour et le nuit. Que donnerez-vous, belle, qui l'amènerait ici? Je donnerai Québec, serait le Saint-Denis. How was it my French didn't go, and your sign-talk did? Harvey demanded when the barter had been distributed among the we're hearers. Sign-talk! Platt guffawed. Well, yes, twas sign-talk, but a heap older in your French, Harve. Them French boats are chock-full of Freemasons, and that's why. Are you a Freemason, then? Looks that way, don't it? said the man-o'-war's man, stuffing his pipe, and Harvey had another mystery of the deep sea to brood upon. End of chapter When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.